Hey, this is Dan Altman, and welcome back to the Smartest Scout podcast, The Why in Analytics. Today, we've got a Q&A, questions and answers from our listeners and followers on social media. We've got a good number of questions here about what we do at Smarter Scout, football, soccer analytics in general, sports analytics. So I'm going to jump right in. Uh, first, we got a question about measuring potential and forecasting success for young players. Well, if we're looking at young players, you know, there are a few of them who are going to have big numbers in our basic metrics, and, and they're already going to be very central to their clubs. They're already going to be playing at a high level, and no one's really going to have any doubt that they're going to go on and be stars. You know, the Phil Fodens of the world, they're going back further, the Wayne Rooney's. It's going to be pretty clear that where they're going. And, you know, for a player who's pretty mature like that, we're obviously going to expect them to be successful. Where we need to look a little closer is in young players who may not be integral parts of senior squads yet. And, and we shouldn't necessarily expect them to be that when they're still teenagers. We're looking more at that point for profiles and milestones that predict future success. You know, we have an algorithm at Smarter Scout, our Young Prospects algorithm, which is looking at a sample that we took of about nine years of uh, debuts in Europe's top five leagues. And we essentially had three three-year cohorts there. So we could look at the cohort that debuted in the first three years and then see how they succeeded in the second three years. And then we could come up with some profiles that we thought would predict success in those second three years. And then we could test them by looking at the cohort that debuted in the second period to see how they performed in the third period. So we had one calibration cohort and one testing cohort. And that kind of method can help you to identify profiles of players who might go on to succeed at a higher level. And, and that's what we have implemented on the site. Now, we ran that obviously for the top five leagues, but then I also ran it on uh, some of the lower leagues uh, in Europe and throughout the world and found that the results were pretty similar, that the same types of profiles were the ones that predicted success. And the most interesting part of this was that the profiles actually seemed to be good going back to about age 16, uh, which is about as young as players get when they're making debuts in senior squads in the leagues that we cover. So we think this is a really robust way to identify young prospects. We structured the profiles and rules that we use for flagging these players in such a way that they would minimize the false positives and the false negatives. So uh, we think it's a pretty robust tool. And if you look on the site, if you're a premium or a pro user of the site, you'll be able to see those young prospects and uh, follow them over the next couple of years to see how they perform. If you're a pro user, you can even search specifically for the young prospects. So you could just look at a league and say, okay, who are all the young prospects at left wing or something like that? Um, and we think the results are really interesting. So I hope you enjoy that. Uh, second question, what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of top-down versus bottom-up metrics? Well, I think both of these are actually really important. I actually call them something else. I call the top-down metrics the agnostic metrics because they're typically based on the time that a player spends on the pitch versus off the pitch or some other measure of participation. And it's not trying to specify anything about how the player's con contributing. So it's agnostic to what the player's actually doing. It's just sort of, are they participating or not? And the mechanistic 
metrics are the ones I like to call, or that's the name I like to use for bottom up, because mechanistically we are attaching a value to every action, as I spoke about when we discussed the shot creation and ball progression models of expected goals, where we actually use those models to assign value uh, to each action, both attacking and defending. So we've got the agnostic or top-down metrics, and we've got the mechanistic or bottom-up metrics. Now, we've already spoken at length about the mechanistic ones. What about the agnostic ones? Well, there are a lot of different types. Uh, Plus-minus is one you hear about a lot, especially in other sports. Uh, and, and you also hear about points above replacement or wins above replacement. Lots of people have tried to make things like this. And, and it tends to be sort of, well, how do you do when the guy's playing versus how do you do when he's not? Now, as an economist and scientist, I like to use sources of random variation when I'm trying to figure out the effect of a player uh, being involved in a game or, or over a, the course of a season. So when I was just starting out doing football analytics now seven years ago or so, I wanted to try and do studies like this uh, inspired by the kinds of work that we do in economics. So I would say, well, what's a random source of variation about whether a player is playing or not? And the most obvious one that comes to mind is injuries. So if you look at a player who's had an eight or 10 year career, there are obviously some spells where the player's been injured that might not have anything to do with the overall performance of the team. So can we look at the times when the player is available to play, whether or not he actually plays, and look at the team's performance then, and the times when he's not available because of injury, and look at the team's performance then? That would be a nice way of trying to figure out the importance of the player agnostically to how he actually contributed when he was on the pitch. Uh, but of course, over shorter periods of time, there aren't that many injuries, and there are lots of other factors why you might reject a strategy like that. So we want to come up with something else. Uh, I used a technique that's uh, inspired by the Shapley value, which is a formula that the Nobel laureate economist and mathematician Lloyd Shapley came up with back in the 60s to try and find a cooperative bargaining solution for workers in a collaborative setting. So you would have a bunch of, let's say, factory workers building cars, and they were trying to figure out who was most important to the process and to compensate that person and all the people in the team so that they would all feel like their work was being fairly compensated and they would want to cooperate to build cars. Well, we can use that sort of formula because it tries to break down uh, everybody's contribution through a series of statistical hypotheticals, we can use that formula to try and break down the importance of players on the pitch as well. Now, a question I get asked a lot about that agnostic metric is, well, is there really enough variation? Uh, there are some players who seem to be on the pitch a lot. That's true. There are some players who seem to start every game. But every game is not just one game, and there's not just one squad during the game because we have substitutions. So imagine if a club makes three substitutions in sequence over the course of a match, then there are actually four mini-games inside that match where there are different squads. And then if you think about the opposition, they might be facing different opposition at different times too. So if you're trying to simultaneously determine the contribution of all these players over time, you actually have a lot of variation over the course of a season. Now, I still wouldn't use just a couple of games to try and suss out these contributions, but I found that if players had played at least, let's say, 10 full matches, so you're getting close to 1,000 minutes, we were going to get pretty reliable figures. Now, the way that I think that these metrics are really useful, perhaps the most useful, is in combination. 
you have agnostic metrics and mechanistic metrics. The agnostic is trying to tell you the overall contribution that a player makes, regardless of how, and the mechanistic metrics are trying to tell you if we assign value to all these actions, this is sort of as, as much as we think the player is contributing in total. But we might still be missing things that aren't included in the model. Well, the things that you might be missing are probably some of those intangibles. Uh, an example I like to use is Marco Materazzi back in the World Cup final against France. You know, supposedly he talks to Zidane about his sister and Zidane headbutts him. And, you know, Zidane was sort of like the, the coach and captain on the pitch at that point and leading the team. And it really demoralized the team in the World Cup final when he was uh, asked to leave the pitch as a result of that action. So, you know, if Materazzi is someone who can get under the skin of a player like Zidane reliably time after time, then that's an intangible benefit that we probably wouldn't measure with our me mechanistic metrics. But our agnostic metrics might do that. They might assign him a greater contribution to winning. So the key to this is if we want to use these in combination, we need to denominate them in the same currency. We need to say, okay, we're going to measure agnostic contributions in terms of, let's say, expecting goals, and we'll measure the mechanistic contribution in terms of expected goals as well. And now we can take the difference between them. So if the agnostic contribution looks a lot higher than the mechanistic contribution, then this is a player who's actually doing a lot more on the pitch than what we measure mechanistically. The intangibles are there. And this, as I say so often, this helps us to ask the right questions, right? These are data that help us to ask the right questions. Why is it that this player is giving us so much more than our mechanistic model might think? Of course, the reverse could be true as well. There could be a player with great mechanistic ratings, seems to be doing a lot of good things on the pitch, but the agnostic ratings are low. It seems like the overall contribution is low. Why is he getting less out of these actions than we'd expect? And it might just be that he's a misfit in the system or he does other things that deflate the team somehow. Again, we need to ask the question, why is this? And then we have to look at the video and talk to the coaches and the other players to try and figure it out. But the key here is that looking at this difference can help us to identify what those intangibles might be. And I think that that is one of the most useful things we can use agnostic metrics for in combination with the mechanistic metrics. Uh, another question here. How could one measure second balls won by players? Is there any metric? Well, in event data and tracking data, we have chronology with timestamps, so we can do it fairly easily. We don't know exactly the situation all the time, but we can always ensure that we're looking at open play, and we could set a time limit between changes of possession, so one team loses the ball, how soon does the other team get the ball back, and a maximum number of actions before they get the ball back. So we could say, well, the second ball is the opposition touches the ball once, and then can we get the ball back on the next touch? Or you might say, well, we're going to let them have two actions because one is receiving and then the other is attempting to pass or something like that. But however you choose to define it, you can define a second ball and then you can measure how often they're done. But you, you really have to do it on a bespoke basis because data collectors are usually not going to define it for you. So you're going to have to get your feet wet with the data there. Okay, next question. Could you expand on putting value on good positioning? How can we put a metric on good positional play from a defender? Now this is tough. There are things you can do with tracking data to do with pitch control, etc., cetera, uh, which are definitely legitimate and can help you to understand positioning. But what we're trying to get at here, I think, and something that I talk about quite a bit, is these experienced defenders 
who don't seem to tackle very much at all, who don't in fact seem to get into a physical intervention very much at all when they're defending, but they manage to defuse danger. They somehow manage to take the stuffing out of the opposition attacks by their positioning and their ability to close off spaces. And let me tell you, this is something that in Smarter Scout metrics you essentially are going to have to deduce or you're going to have to get to a point where it looks like that might be the thing that's working here and you're going to have to use other sources of information to confirm. We have five basic defending metrics. We have style metrics for disrupting opposition moves and recovering moving balls. We record that. We also have a metric that measures skill in ground duels out of possession, so typically you're tackling. And we have a defending quantity estimate of opportunities per minute out of possession, which gives you an idea of defending aggressiveness. And we have a defending quality metric for overall contributions to expected goal that a defender concedes to the opponent per opportunity. Now, if we see a player who seems to have very good defending quality and decent quantity, but doesn't do a lot of direct interventions or doesn't do them well, then that's a player who might be doing it with positioning. You know, we see some veteran defenders late in their careers, like I would think of John Terry or Per Mertesacker, who have high defending quality and low quantity. Now, it might be that they're just running out of gas a little bit and they don't get around the pitch as much as they used to, but you have to ask, are they able to do even more with less? Or is it just the case that attackers are afraid to come at them? You know, why is it that they're able to maintain this high quality and seem to do their job even though the pace of their defending it seems to have gone down quite a bit. And, and it's a really interesting question. You know, rating defenders is tough. Everybody knows it. Um, we try and get at it from several different sides. But this idea of measuring good positioning, I think you could probably do better with tracking data, but you can at least get some hints from the event data as well. We had a more specific question about this too, which was if a player, for example, Ben Godfrey, has very low defensive quality and quantity numbers, as he does on our site, but has very high skill and ground rules out of possession, how do you interpret his ability as a center back? Well, the thing is here, he may be a great tackler. He may have a lot of raw talent, but he's a young player. He's only 20 years old, I believe, and, and he may not read the game well yet, or perhaps he may have poor decision-making. So tackling is something that can really work for him in a last-ditch situation, but it's not going to solve all his problems, right? It's not going to help him to really decode what the attackers are trying to do. So that tackling is a great skill and it'll be with him for his whole career hopefully and he'll be able to use it but he'll be able to use it even more effectively and judiciously once he gets good at the other aspects of defending that would be my suspicion looking at that kind of data next question how do the league adjustments work as you know one of the really unique features of smarter scout is that we allow you to choose a benchmark league and then look at players from all over the world using your benchmark league as the standard. So you could say, how well would that player from the Chinese Super League stack up if he came to the Portuguese Liga NOS? Uh, and we calibrate this in what I think is a pretty novel way. If you imagine that transfers of players between leagues form a huge network, Right? If you were to draw a line from one league to the other every time players transferred leagues, you'd have a huge network diagram. And you can think of it a bit like a system of exchange rates, but without the same transitivity constraints. So 
we have this big system where there are different currencies being traded and you would expect the adjustments to sort of add up if you made chains of transactions that got you from one currency to the other currency. So when we want to see how performance changes between leagues A and leagues B, and B, let's say, we can look at several different things. We can look at what happens when players move from league A to league B. That's the simplest. But we can also look at what happens when players move from league B to league A, right? It's just the negative. But we can also look at what happens when players move from league A to league C, a third league, and others move from league C to league B. Because now we've made the same connection from A to B, we've just gone through another league, League C. And once you realize that, you can see what a huge amount of data we have to calibrate these league adjustments. And we use it to adjust each metric independently. We adjust the model and the skill ratings because those are really trying to isolate individual ability. And that shouldn't change when players switch leagues. But we don't adjust the style ratings because style can change for so many reasons when a player switches leagues. At the very least, he or she is going to be switching coaches and clubs and systems, most likely. You know, there are just so many things. So we don't want to try and be predictive about how the style might change because it's so idiosyncratic. But with the skill and model metrics, which are really trying to get at individual ability, we think that we're measuring something that shouldn't change too much. Now, obviously, there are players who are growing in their careers, they're developing when they're in their early 20s or teens, and there are others who are kind of on the downslope in their late 20s and 30s. And, and so you can't just make one adjustment for all of them. And we're trying to give you some idea of what the adjustment should be on a, on a sort of instantaneous basis. Just if they were to switch clubs, let's say, in mid-season, you know, how would we expect performance to look? The best way to think about it is, if you're looking at numbers from last season and you're looking at them as a standard of another league, to ask yourself, how would this player have performed in the other league if the performance was the same as last season? So it's not necessarily predictive. It's more of a simulation of what a player might do in another league. All right, let's go on to the next question. What practices do you have to evaluate your practices? Are they purely results-based or are they also process-based? Well, we do a ton of validation on our data, the data we receive from our third-party raw data provider and on our own metrics. The raw data on the site have been validated using video and then transformed where necessary for accuracy. If we see any systematic errors in how our data provider is coding the things, then we are going to correct that. So before SmartScout was launched, there were several months of just validation of the raw data to, to put it into a form where we thought it was usable and reliable. Um, and beyond what I mentioned about our young prospects algorithm before, where obviously we did a lot of validation in coming up with that algorithm, the main metrics on the site have been validated mainly for their persistence at each position, position right? Because we want things to give us some sort of reliable signal. As I said, it's not always going to be predictive but we want some sort of persistence that would square with the ages of the players and the points in their development. Now, we don't expect perfect correlations from year to year because of those differences where some players are growing into their peak years and others are coming out of them, but we want to have a fairly high correlation from year to year. And, and the main metrics on the site have all been established so that they have those uh, persistent attributes. All right, here's another more general question. 
where is the starting point for a beginner to enter the analytical industry? Well, I get asked this question a ton, as I think other practitioners in the field do as well. And I usually just say, go and grab some data. Uh, there are lots of data sources out there. There are people who make free data available, event data from StatsBomb, for example, and tracking data from Metrica Sports. Uh, there's just there's a huge amount that you can get. Um, and you can just use basic data too. You know, when I was talking about the agnostic metrics before, you don't need any event data from that. You don't need any tracking data for that. You just need to know who was on the pitch when. Uh, and you can get that from most sports websites that cover uh, soccer. So, you know, I, I started out working on this Shapley value type of uh, metric before I ever had seen event data. And you can do that too. But if you're capable of working with the raw data, event data, and tracking data, you can get some. And you can start working on it yourself. You can even collect your own data. You know, a while back I mentioned Paul Riley's sort of do-it-yourself expected goals model. Uh, and recently a North Yard Analytics fellow by the name of David Quarty, who's from Ghana, uh, collected his own data on corners and uh, got an honorable mention at uh, the Seattle Sounders Analytics Conference for the paper competition with data that he had entirely collected on by himself on signaling for corners. So you can collect it, you can grab it, there are plenty of ways to get data. At that point, time to get to work. Use the tools that you have, whether it's just Excel or coding in R or Python or some other language, and, and see if you can answer an interesting question. For example, you, know, you can say a lot about corners, penalties, throw-ins, all sorts of repeated situations that happen so many times during a season just with Excel-level stats. Uh, if you want to do some fancier modeling, great, but it's great to start simple too because then you can easily explain what you're doing to other people and you might be able to make a breakthrough a little bit more easily when there are a lot of people who can understand your work. So once you do that, write about your work, share it publicly on social media or blog, however you want to do it, and get involved in discussions with other people doing the same thing. Get involved in critiques too. You want people to critique your work so that you can make it better. Uh, and when you have something that you're happy with, submit it to some forums or conferences, send it to clubs, whatever you can do. You know, there are uh, lots of ways that you can get in touch with people who are working in the sport. Uh, and there are a lot of them who are on social media, whether it's on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And just send them your stuff and, and see if you can get any resonance. But I've got to give you a word of warning, too. You know, there are more jobs in football and soccer analytics than ever before, but there still aren't that many. You know, in England and Wales, probably only clubs in the top three tiers can afford a full-time data analyst, if that. And, and that's 68 clubs. So if the biggest clubs are hiring a few more, then maybe there are 100 jobs for a full-time data analyst in professional football in England and Wales. And, and these leagues are among the furthest along in embracing data. If you come to the United States and you think about MLS or USL Championship, you, know, you might have a few data analysts scattered in the USL Championship. You might have one per team in MLS just about these days. Okay, so in the entire United States, there might be about 50 jobs uh, in this area. So there aren't that many jobs. Also, you probably have to take a pay cut to work in sports because you as a data analyst are likely to have a lot of skills that are quite marketable in other industries 
Uh, but in sports, you know, people figure you're getting another kind of compensation because you're involved in something that's fun that you can be passionate about. So your pay might take a little bit of a dive. And the last thing that is really important is that results in sports, and thus how some people are going to see your work, whether that's accurate or not, will be driven by factors that are largely beyond your control. So you know, be careful where you work. There are a lot of apparently cold-blooded, rational people who get into professional sports, and then all that rationality goes out the window. All right, so are you really ready to rise and fall in your career on someone else's caprices? I think that's the question that you have to ask yourself. You know, there, there's going to be a lot of stuff that is just luck, and uh, you might want to work in a profession where it's more about building something and you're making consistent progress towards your goals. Now, a final word for you. Uh, you know, my time in soccer and football analytics has been frustrating once in a while, but it's also been really rewarding and educational. You know, sports are for entertainment. They give people a sense of belonging. They allow them to direct their passion into something that's wonderfully ephemeral, and it's really nice to contribute to that, and you meet a lot of really wonderful people. Uh, I, you know, I don't care, ultimately, if anyone knows that a club is using data. Uh, you know, th there was never a, a, a sort of crusade here to get data into sports because it showed how clever you were or something like that. The idea is to enrich the sport for everyone, to, to stop clubs from making mistakes that would lead to bad financial outcomes and a lot of heartbreak, to try and reduce risk so that the sport can continue to give so much to the people who value it. And, uh, you know, I hope that that's what we're doing. I hope that as we allow people to learn more about the metrics and data through Smarter Scout, that we're going to take some of that risk away, especially in a difficult time like right now when live sport is having trouble coming back. So I hope that all of you who are along on this journey with us will, will contribute to that in some way, and we can look forward to many more years of live sport for everyone who enjoys it. So thanks once again. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and hope to talk to you again soon.